from The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD, this is LGBTQ and A. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and let me be very clear. If at the end of the year, you read any best of 2020 lists that do not include real life, the novel by Brandon Taylor, they are trash. Trash, garbage, rubbish, not recycling, other synonyms, you know what I'm saying. But in all seriousness, with Wallace, the main character in real life, we are gifted one of the most compelling and original characters in recent memory. When we meet Wallace, he's unhappy. And same, but what will change that? He contemplates leaving the grad program he's in where he's the only black person. He contemplates leaving the relationship with the straight-ish man he finds himself in. He contemplates romantic relationships in general. So what does he need to do? The answers aren't easy, but in real life, the novel, just like in real life, real life, the answers never are. So Brandon Taylor talks about all of that on the podcast today. Let's get to it. You know, this is not the typical queer character that we're used to reading about. Yes, he's Black, he's a scientist, but on top of that, he doesn't fit into the gay male stereotype that's usually presented of gay men being sex-obsessed. Is that something that you wanted to push back on? You know, I mean, I wouldn't say push back on because I think that that is like gay men sort of feeling free to express their sexuality or queer people in general being able to express their sexuality is like really an important part of like liberation and feeling like you can you can do that without being persecuted by the law. So I wouldn't say it's something that I wanted to push back on because I think it is an important part of queer life. But I was interested in sort of telling a story that feels closer to my own interests and my own way of being in the world. And I know many queer people who are not sort of sex-centered and where sex is sort of a thing that exists, but it's not sort of something that we're interested in pursuing necessarily. And so it felt important to me to sort of tell a different kind of story, but I, I don't really see it as being in, in opposition to those other kinds of stories. I think it's, you know, we're all part of the same party and it's great. <laughs> yeah, no, I gotcha. You've written before too about like your view on relationships and sex. And I just think, again, comparing that to like the history of literature and Hollywood, like we're sold this myth that if you're not in a relationship, then your life is not fulfilled. Was that something big that you had to get over? Absolutely. Ages 10 to 28 or something, I was just really relationship obsessed. And I really, really wanted a relationship. And I thought that if I didn't have a relationship, then I wasn't worthy of love and I wasn't a worthy person. And I had all these myths, many of them internalized from the culture, I, I will say. And, and so it was really only like when I turned like 28, 29, where it's kind of like, oh, I really like myself. Like I like the human I am and, I, and I'm and i an interesting person and I don't need someone to desire me to feel worthy or fulfilled. And coming to that place in my own life allowed me to sort of imagine, you know, characters who existed beyond the realm of like, will they, won't they? Will they get involved in relationships? Won't they? It became a much more interesting set of questions to me to sort of understand how a person exists in the world if I kind of set that relationship question aside. But it was really only after like working on my myself that I was even able to kind of see how you know, becoming relationship obsessed. It's not that it's an unworthy thing, but it was just kind of like, oh, it's not the only thing that I can do with my life. <laughs> and then just to clarify, are you not interested in a relationship ever or just not something that you're like spending time pursuing? 
You know, I mean, I, it's not something that I'm spending time pursuing. You know, I, I had a boyfriend for like the first time ever in 2018 and we were together for about a year and it was a really wonderful relationship and, and, you know, it was a great like love of my life and it was really wonderful, but I, I sort of had this sort of growing awareness that I kind of just, as good as that was, I think I, I craved solitude more And rather than letting that relationship get to a place where I was feeling resentful or where I was feeling like negative toward this person that I cared so much for, like, why not just call it good and be like, you know, this relationship was really beautiful and really wonderful, but I think I I would rather be by myself. I like that more. And so I don't feel the need to stay in this relationship if it's only going to become resentment you know (laughs) like if it's only going to turn if it's going to turn this great beautiful love into resentment I kind of left that relationship to sort of be alone to sort of think and and to be by myself and you know maybe I'll change my mind you know down the road but I'm just trying to follow you know like what makes me happy because for a long time in my life I felt as though choosing my own happiness was not only not an option, but it was also like deeply selfish and, and, and really awful. And so I'm just trying to unlearn a lot of those toxic lessons <laughs> from the culture. And I'm glad you were like open and talking about it just because like I've been single for a long time, like in terms of like long-term relationships. And I get the look of sometimes like, well, what is wrong with you? Mm. Yes. I And I felt that for a long time, you know, like I felt that. But when I told some friends that I had broken up with my boyfriend to sort of be alone, all my, some of my friends were like, okay, but like, why? Wasn't it good? I was like, yes, it was wonderful, but I like being by myself more. And they were like, I don't understand. You had a boyfriend. Like I could tell that you know, I had kind of stepped down in the world by choosing to be alone. And I could tell because people started treating me differently. You know, like when I got a boyfriend, people sort of like, ooh, oh, look at him. He's so glowy. And they treated me better when I had a boyfriend. And when I chose to leave that relationship, people treat started treating me worse. And so I do think there is something very real to that idea that society likes people paired off and a, a single person disturbs them. <laughs> Before we move off of talking about sex, do you take on the label aromantic or asexual? You know, I don't. I mean, I feel gay. I feel like I am a gay man. And, you know, I, I wrote an essay for Condé Nast queer vertical them. A lot of people in the kind of ace and aromantic community were like, oh yeah, this person's ace, this person's aromantic. And I, you know, like I was like, you know, I don't identify that way. I'm glad that you feel seen by this piece of writing, but I don't want to take up space in someone else's community. Like I don't want to take up space and to sort of claim a label that I myself like don't identify as. I love that piece, actually. And I have a quote that you wrote. I have receipts. (laughs) Oh, please lay them out. Yes. It's just that you wrote that you found sex to be an insufficiently motivating, organizing principle of life. And so that's why I was wondering, like, if you like label it with asexuality. Yeah, I mean, I think that part of that is, I think that part of what I was thinking through in that essay is, is that sex has always been a very fraught space for me. Sex has always been a really difficult space. I had a lot of sexual trauma as a child um, and as a young person. And so sex has never been this like easy space that I can operate in and sort of operate through. And so much of my own ambivalence about sex stems from 
a lot of sexual trauma, a lot of sort of baggage with respect to trauma and and violence. And also with like being a sort of plus-sized queer Black man operating in the the meat space that is the, the gay male meat market and desirability politic. And a lot of that just kind of like, uh, it was like a perfect storm such that I did not have sex for like 10 years. And after a while, I just kind of stopped wanting it. What I was working through in that essay was like my very own particular set of circumstances that led to my kind of sexless existence for a while. And I'm really, really careful about not conflating that necessarily with asexuality, because I would never want someone to read that essay and think that, oh, Brandon's saying that sexual trauma makes you asexual. You know, like I I really didn't want to sort of lay a claim to a label Certainly, I feel like parts of my life, I like if you were to look at it from the outside, it's like, oh, yes, that is asexuality. But I mean, I don't identify that way. I mean, I feel like a gay, <laughs> gay man. Well, I, I was also comparing, you know, this essay about sex and relationships to like your internet presence, which it has like a thirst, <laughs> specifically about like bigger mountainy men. Yeah, I mean, and that's part of why I was like, well, no, I mean, I experienced, I had this substack where I was trying to work through that too. Like, what is it about desire that I'm, that I'm, working through with those tweets. Um, And often when I'm tweeting about like Brad Leone, for example, like the tall boys of Bon Appetit, I'm often thinking through not necessarily a desire to sleep with them because I, I don't want to sleep with them, but it's more a sort of thinking through like what is desire and some sort of deeper emotion, some kind of like deeper longing or, or desire. I mean, I tweet about large mountain men and in part of that is just because I'm from rural Alabama. And so I think, I think the way that masculinity first imprints upon you, you just can never escape it. Like there's some kind of atavistic reversion. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever you see like a man who represents that first primal archetype of masculinity to you, you just kind of like, oh, what is this feeling I'm I'm experiencing? I mean, that's so interesting you say that because one of the moments that stuck with me, I'm always curious about like when I put down the book in the morning, like what throughout the day do I think about? And for your book, it was one of those early moments where the main character is flushing out the other character's eyes because he had like hot peppers and touched his eyes. And I realized that I hadn't read about men caring for men in a non-sexual way and like men caring for men that involved like a non-sexual physical touch and that intimacy. I just like find so rare on on the page and in real life, frankly. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it wasn't rare in my sort of actual lived experience, that kind of like male touch being very nurturing and intimate and caring because, you know, in my family, my dad was the caregiver. My mom worked all these really difficult jobs to support us. My dad, who was legally blind and disabled, like couldn't work and couldn't work outside of the home. He did a lot of work like in the home. Like he's the one who did all the cooking and the cleaning and he looked after me. He's the one who got me up in the morning and bathed me, you know, like he was the caregiver in my family. There are a lot of men in my family and we were always kind of pushing each other and shoving each other and looping arms around necks and wrestling. But also like my grandpa showing me how to plant things in our gardens or or how to like look after the chickens or the dogs or the goats. You know, like there are always these kinds of moments of like male-male intimacy that I think about all the time. And so, yeah, it was really important to me to kind of get at the multiple ways that that men kind of interact with other men, not just like sexually, but in this way that is 
more caring and more giving. And But I do think that with, like, queer men, there's always that sort of doubleness. It's like, yeah. even when, like, your male friends are being, like, really caring, it's like, what are we? You touched me. Like, what? Like, like are we together now? Like, what does this mean? Even when we have a close male friendship, all of your friends are like, is that it, though? Yeah, I mean, there is that, too. And, and I had a lot of straight male friends in college who I had a lot of charged friendships with. And, like, the charge was certainly not coming from inside of the house. Like, it wasn't coming from me because I... I'm like, no, 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 we are friends. Like, I, I, I've had my fill of falling for straight men. I'm not doing it again. But when I got to college, all of my straight male friends were, like, really intimate with me because they had not had this experience of coming from, like, a lot of male intimacy. And so the minute I was, like, intimate with them in, like, a friendly way, they were like, what is this? I've never felt this way toward another man before. And so they would get, like, very possessive and, like, very jealous. And so it was very confusing. It's it's really confusing. I mean, one of the most intimate relationships in my life right now is a friendship. And it's not sexual, but it is intimate in ways sometimes that does shock me. And a lot of like the friendships in the book didn't have clean lines. I couldn't tell if the main character was friends with them because he liked them or if he was friends with them because they were just there. I think that graduate programs are a lot like that. You know, they're often friendships of proximity. They're friendships of happenstance. But I do think that friendships of convenience do have a way of becoming like year over year into like real genuine friendships that are complicated by all the valences that a life is complicated by, right? Like Wallace's friends are his friends, but they're also really bad friends sometimes. (laughs) And to me, that is like the real life of the title. Yes, totally. I mean, it's, and and I feel like that's kind of become a bit of a cliche in a lot of like gay media, like the WeHo catty friendship brunch gaze. And I was just like, yes, that's a real thing, but like there's something deeper. This wasn't that though. Yeah. And I can say that for a fact because I just moved from WeHo actually to New York City. (laughs) Oh, here's an example actually. The main character's father is dead. That's a spoiler only for the first sentence of the book. (laughs) None of the friends can accept the way that he's grieving. He's not grieving quote-unquote correctly. And like that to me was a messiness that like I appreciated because people do have very strong views of like how you should behave when a parent dies. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I was, you know, like it's not that I wrote this book to like grind an axe, but one of the axes I was happy to grind when writing this book was was to sort of bust open a lot of the the polite myths around things like grieving because people do want you to behave in a certain way. Like in almost every context, there's like a set of like prescribed behaviors that society wants you to conform to. And if you don't, you're doing it wrong. And we have a lot of feelings as a culture about how grief should work. Like just as a rule, like it should be messy. Your life should be ruined, but in this really constrained way so that when I comfort you, I can feel good about comforting you. And if you deny me the pleasure of comforting you, I'm going to have a problem with it. We want everything to go according to these scripts that we have. And part of my frustration is that nobody wants to acknowledge that we're all reading from a script. And so when I sat down to write the book, I was like, you know what I'm going to write about? I'm going to write about how oppressive it feels (laughs) when a bunch of people try to tell you how to feel about a person in your life to whom you had a complicated and difficult relationship. You know, recently the um, the publishing paid me hashtag was going viral on Twitter, exposing different disparities between authors based on like race and gender primarily. And you posted what you were paid for this book and your next one. Was that hard to reveal those numbers? 
Hmm. I'm from the South. We don't talk about money. Um, I'm from the South, too. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. You, you, I mean, talking about money, it's like, one, it's like, how dare you brag? And also, like, how dare you expose your business to the streets? I mean, I wasn't going to to do it, but it felt a bit silly for me to sort of have done a thread about the whole conversation and to not put any skin in the game. You know, it felt silly for me to to participate in the discussion without participating in the discussion. So I was like, oh, I've talked about this conversation, but I should I should put some skin in the game and I should I should tell people how much I, I was paid for the books. And and then I did. So then I put it all out there to the to the world. For me, it cemented something that we know, which is that being an author is not a full-time sustainable job for the vast majority of people. Is that something that you went to the Iowa Writers' Workshop, which is famous? Is that something that was talked about there? No, of course not. <laughs> of course, of course. So it was craft only. I mean, sometimes I'm in craft. I had a difficult time at Iowa, so perhaps I'm not the person to ask. But what I remember most of my two years there, so they would bring in editors and agents to talk to students and to do seminars and stuff. But we were told by our professors, like, okay, we're bringing in this agent, this editor, but remember that this is place is about art. It's only about writing. Business lives out there. We don't do that here. Like we're letting the bad people into the temple, but we're going to do it. A lot of the professors are of a different generation. And so I do think that it comes from a place of like, we want to preserve the art. We want to preserve the integrity of this space. But I do think that that is like kind of the reason that publishing is constructed the way it is, like it's all cloak and dagger and knives and secrets. Because to me, it's like, if I don't care how good of a writer you are if you can't get published for me to read it. You know, some people feel that focusing too much on the marketplace too early places an undue onus on the marketplace and that sometimes, and that money doesn't necessarily correlate to value and worth. And I agree with that. I think that there are some books that are masterpieces that the author got paid $5 for, you know? So like capitalism and artistic value don't always agree. (laughs) And so I do understand why, why the teachers feel that way. But what I do think also is that when you deprive your students of an education in the economic realities of the industry, that they are ostensibly entering, then you're doing them a disservice. Like by not talking about agents, by not talking about what a book contract is and how you get paid from a book contract without talking about how, like, what does it mean to be a freelancer? How does one freelance without sharing contacts for your students, without going the extra mile to make sure that they can have an economic career as a writer to the best of their ability, then you're doing them a disservice. That is like robbing them of a crucial part of their education. Yeah. Another part of that thread where you were talking about what publishing paid me, you wrote that writers who are Black don't get second chances Mm. in the industry. Is that something that you saw and witnessed for yourself or someone like a mentor character taught you? So that's something that I, so I'm trained as a scientist. And so before I undertake anything, I just like over prepare and over research. And so for years, I read account after account after account of black black writers telling their stories of how they came to be published and their travails of trying to be published a second time. And I also watched the way that the marketplace worked when black books would come out, the way that those books were positioned and the way that those books were talked about. I I read thread after thread on Twitter, like we're, we're sort of creators of color. We're talking about marketing budgets and sales and all this other stuff. And so I felt like when it came, when I sold my book, 
I was like, okay, literally the day after my book deal, I was like, okay, it's go time. I have to like lay the groundwork. I've got to figure out like how I want this book to be talked about. I've got to figure out how, like, who are the people I need to go to? I need to figure out what conversations this book is a part of. And when it came down to even like revising my book, my my agent had one idea about the first line of the novel and she thought it should be two sentences. And I was like, no, 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 because that tells a different story. That 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 that's a that's an opening for a book of somebody who's never gonna win a Pulitzer. And like I need to let people know from the first sentence of the first book that this is a person with serious literary ambitions. Um and so I just had all this awareness in my head of just like the high stakes for black writers because the fact of the matter is, if you don't kind of break out more than your white peers, the, the chances of you getting a second book contract, you know, like the chances of you getting getting to like reset the perception of your work, like those are so low. Every part of the way that my book rolled out, I was in my agent's inbox like three times a day being like, this this list, we can't, we got to like reframe this because we can't let the conversation form this way. Like we can't let people talk about the book in this way. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it, and it just came from doing a lot of research and really talking to other Black writers and watching their, their publishing stories unfold. I think that's great to hear because, and I, I don't mean this in a rude way, but I was taught to respect authority, be it my teachers, be it the police, be it like anybody else who's like a professional in the industry. So I think it's really challenging and hard for like someone like you to tell your agent, no, this is going to be the first line of the book. We're not going to change it. And like, not just like think that they knew what's best. A same, you know, like I was taught say yes, ma'am, no, ma'am to literally anyone who even looks five minutes older than you. Like my relationship to authority was very much one of I must make authority feel comfortable about me existing. Because we also were taught that they are in power for a reason because they're the smarter than us. Yeah. But, you know, actually, maybe the one thing I did learn at Iowa is that people who are teachers are not necessarily smarter than you. And like people who are in authority don't necessarily know best. The thing that people in publishing love most is to pretend that like, oh, people just so happen to end up in positions of authority and they just so happen to end up like on all these lists and like, oh, isn't it such happy random happenstance that all these things happened? And I'm like, no, it's not. It's because they did the following moves in their work. It's because they did this. It's because they their work was talked about a certain way. And I just cannot afford to wait on the vagaries of publishing to sort of figure out like, okay, he's going to get it on book five. I'm like, Black writers don't often get book five. (laughs) You know, Black writers get book one. And if it doesn't do okay, then publishing moves on from them. With the publishing paid me hashtag, I talked about what surprised me in it. Did anything in that surprise you? No. Well, yes. I mean, (laughs) the the thing that surprised me were, were... Certain writers of color who I thought for sure had gotten piles of money for their work, like peers of mine who had got, who I was sure had gotten a lot of money, had gotten less money than I did. That was maddening to me. And, you know, writers with worse resumes than I, than mine getting four, five, six times what I had gotten from my work. You know, I felt like I had been compensated for my work, but I also felt like to get to the point at which I was compensated fairly, it had taken me, my resume was so much better than it would have had to have been if I had been a white man. I wouldn't have had to racked up all the things I needed to rack up, like having two graduate degrees, going to the world's most famous MFA program, being a literary editor for a literary magazine, having like 30,000 Twitter followers or whatever. Like I wouldn't have had to like rack up the platform 
and the bona fides that I had, had I not, had I been white. So last question about this is like the most, is the biggest way for this to create change just the simply like shame? You know, I mean, I think it's really complex and complicated. What I think first and foremost is that transparency puts the cards on the table. It was really interesting that several cis white male writers did not put their advances on the spreadsheet. They were silent through the first two days of it. So I think one transparency is really key to this. And I think also having more honest and frank conversations within the industry about what and how do these mechanisms give rise to these inequities? What does it mean when we say, oh, it's more marketable? Like, what does that really mean? Like getting down to real concrete terms and getting out of the nebulous feel language that like publishing is predominated by and to really be more transparent in the way that you come up with the number that you give agents and and authors for what their work is due and like really trying to be more honest about what are you saying when you give this book in advance is this a reflection of what you think the book is worth or is this a reflection of what you think the marketplace wants for reasons that are related to all the horrible things that are related to capitalism like racism sexism white supremacy etc you know like i think we just got to be more concrete and more honest about who is getting how much for what. And that to me feels like a really important first step is a kind of concretizing language around these things. And then these are all based on the assumption of like how much a book will sell or not. And then it's also the question of like, well, what are you doing publishing company to make sure this book does sell? Exactly. You know, like I will say that my publisher did a brilliant job publishing my book. You know, they... I immediately felt the enthusiasm for my book in-house. The publicists were all really lovely and really excited about it. My editor was really lovely. and Everyone, like my Riverhead books made me feel like my work was valued and that they all loved this book so much. And that enthusiasm showed up in a million different ways. You know, my publisher published me incredibly well, but not every writer and certainly many writers of color do not have that same benefit. And they absolutely should. Like it's often the case that our books don't get pushed. They get like pushed off the back of a truck in the middle of the night and the publisher drives away never to promote it or or anything. You know, your future books are going to be coming out in the like quote unquote post-pandemic world. <laughs> and I just think about it, how are you thinking about writing that world in terms of like face masks or like less crowd scenes and things like that? Yeah, I mean it's sort of bananas. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm working on I'm working on a novel right now that's set in the before time because I started it like in 2017. And so it's sort of set in that in that time. My writing hasn't yet caught up to the moment, but it's it's something that I'm thinking about all of the time. What I am noticing is that in my drafts right now, even if the story's set in like 2019 or 2018 or something, I am noticing that like every time I go to write characters touching, I'm like, ugh. Like, how do I, you know, like, and so I am noticing how the pressures of our current moment are like impinging upon the writing of those stories and, and like really interesting ways for me as a writer, just to notice my own habits changing, not just like the pandemic, but also like the sort of uprising against racial injustice that we're seeing, like the whole fabric of society is shifting in really fundamental ways that I think you just can't kind of do like a quick shorthand for. Like, there's just no way to, we live in a different reality now. You are also writing about a future that we don't know how it'll look yet. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it's kind of like we're we're all kind of speculative writers at 
at the moment. I mean, bold of us to assume that there will be a world <laughs> into which to emerge. I'm an optimist now. It's all I have left. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess to sort of answer your question more directly, you know, I'm not confronting it directly yet, but the sort of present moment is changing my writing in ways that that I am noticing as I'm doing them. And, you know, I love a potluck, so that's just got to, like, got to change everything, you know? The underground potlucks. <laughs> I know, the, the, the speakeasy potlucks. I think that leaving this interview at the potlucks is the perfect moment. So thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. <laughs> And that was Brandon Taylor. After we spoke, it came out that Real Life was long-listed for the 2020 Booker Prize. That is one of the leading literary awards. The winner will be announced in a couple of months, and you know who we are rooting for. Now, if you enjoyed this interview, as always, please make sure that you're subscribed and leave a comment on iTunes. Doing things like that and things like tweeting and posting about us on social media, those are some of the biggest ways you can help us continue to grow. So thank you so much for that. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. Come check out all of our amazing work at advocate.com and glad.org. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I'll see you next week. Bye. This was a blast. I had a great time. <laughs>